This time on Science Straight Up. Why am I even doing this? Why would anybody go to the North Pole to, to try and find volcanoes, the North Pole being notoriously flat and covered with ice? A guy named John Snow came to Telluride to talk about ice and fire. No, not the John Snow from Game of Thrones, but rather Dr. Jonathan Snow, Arctic explorer, professor, and chair of geology and geophysics at Louisiana State University. He delivered 2022's first town talk, sponsored by the Telluride Science and Innovation Center. Every summer, Telluride Science brings together a group of researchers from diverse fields for workshops, brainstorming sessions, a lively exchange of ideas high up in the Rockies. Dr. Snow spoke at the Telluride Conference Center in Mountain Village. Thank you all for coming. I've been a geologist since my daddy brought me to this part of the country when I was 14. And uh, I got hooked on the high mountains and the depths of the oceans. And this has really defined my career. The first part of my talk is to say, why am I even doing this? Why would anybody go to the North Pole to, to try and find volcanoes, the North Pole being notoriously flat and covered with ice? And so I'll explain a little bit about that. Volcanoes are where the liquid rock comes out from the depths of the earth. Everybody knows this. There's all kinds of volcanoes all over the earth. Um, but one thing that they have in common is that the uh, magma that comes from them is uh, generated in some place that nobody really cares about. They just sort of think that it comes out of the earth. If you look at a diagram of a volcano, you'll often see underneath the volcano something called a magma chamber. And underneath that, it just is, you know, like electricity coming from the socket. Well, uh, there's more to it than that. And that's been the focus of my career since I was a graduate student, is to find out where magma comes from and how it forms, in particular, the physical and chemical uh, processes and reactions that form volcanic magma. Okay, and so I'm looking, and so there's a lot of them. It's not, you know, a simple story, as you might expect. Um, but I'm looking at a particular one that's common to all volcanoes and that is called mantle melting. That's the transformation of solid earth in the depths of the earth into liquid rock, and then other things happen to it on its way up to the surface that make volcanoes and make them explosive and all of that, but the mantle melting is where it all starts, and that's what I'm interested in studying. So the place to go to study mantle melting is called the mid-ocean ridge system, the global mid-ocean ridge system. This is where seafloor spreading occurs. Um, in seafloor spreading, the tectonic plates, which you may have heard of, spread apart. This is very different than the Ring of Fire, which is a place where the tectonic plates push together. This particular location, it's a chain, 40,000 mile long chain of volcanoes. John Snow says he's constantly inspired by the 19th century Norwegian explorer, scientist, diplomat, and humanitarian Friedhof Nansen, who conducted a three-year expedition in the Arctic in the late 1890s. He was a scientist, an artist, an athlete, and later a diplomat and a Nobel laureate, but foremost an athlete. And he decided after he finished his PhD thesis as a young postdoc that what he needed to do is ski across Greenland, uh, which he then did, which nobody had ever done. And people do it today uh, with technical uh, clothing and helicopter support, a GPS and, uh, and everything, and still people die doing it. But uh, they did not die because they were um, consummate athletes and planners. And uh, um, 
So he instantly became famous in 1887 and, uh, and went on tour to promote his having uh, skied across Greenland because he was, a, he was the greatest skier possibly in the world at that time. Uh, and he promoted the sport of skiing. In fact, he brought the sport of skiing to Europe and also to the United States. And so some of the oldest ski clubs in the United States are named for Nansen. Look it up, it's true. I mean, there's so much to say about Nansen that you won't believe a lot of what I'm about to tell you. And I don't believe it myself, but it's true. I've checked it many, many times. So long about 1890, Nansen in his late 20s uh, uh, had done his PhD on the cell theory of nerves. And so he did the first crossing of Greenland on skis. With doing that, something really interesting happened. He developed the Arctic drift hypothesis. And he, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. Uh, he, people recommended it to him. And so, uh, th so it's a strange story of the American vessel Jeanette, which was uh, a research vessel stranded in the ice in 1883. And the vessel was crushed in the ice, destroyed, but the inhabitants of the vessel rescued themselves to uh, land and, and um, they were okay. But here's the interesting part. Just a few years later, wreckage that is absolutely unambiguously from the Jeanette was found on the east coast of Greenland. Okay? And, uh, and so does this remind you of any like uh, 19th century novel you ever heard of? Like the one about the journey to the center of the earth? This is exactly like going into one volcano and coming out of another. Nansen heard about this on his uh, speaking tour and uh, got the idea, well, if I use all, of, if all the technology that we have available to us in this advanced year of 1890, maybe I can build a ship to explore this region that nobody has ever been able to access before. And so that's what he did. They laughed at him, the, especially the British Geographical Society. Didn't think he could do it because he wasn't British. And uh, uh, I'm just saying. Uh, so he employed all of the most advanced technologies of the late 19th century to build the most solid ice-capable craft that's ever been built. In fact, it was the, uh, it was the first purpose-built oceanographic research vessel. And he, along the way, he also contributed to several other inventions, which included a sled that was based on, based on native uh, Inuit designs uh, and uh, people still use today in the Arctic. It's not, I'm not absolutely not joking about this. And he also contributed to the development of what, uh, of all modern kerosene stoves that heat their, uh, everybody probably here has used one of these that, that heat the liquid to a gas before, they, before it burns it. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess rocket ships do that too, don't they? So he, maybe Nansen is a rocket scientist. But so her five-year mission was to literally, uh, to explore the farthest north to seek out whether there were high Arctic islands um, that could be inhabited or exploited uh, or simply uh, uh, found, to sound the ocean depths and uh, discover the shape of the ocean beneath the Arctic Ocean and to measure the ocean currents. So he did that. Long story short, the uh, Fram sailed around to approximately where uh, Jeanette had been crushed in the ice, got, froze, got itself frozen into the ice or herself frozen into the ice and uh, did not get crushed. And the uh, men of the Fram expedition happily played volleyball on the ice and, uh, and sang songs and uh, did their deep sea measurements for uh, just over three years. But here's the thing, uh, Nansen realized that he wasn't going to make it to the North Pole. And so he, he had actually planned this but didn't tell anybody. 
uh, he did a cap pulled a Captain Kirk and beamed down to the surface of the ice with his trusty lieutenant, Hjalmar Johansson, and they tried to ski for it. Ski for it uh, with, uh, with dog sleds. And, uh, and so, but they, 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 they achieved the farthest north that any human had ever achieved before. And uh, then realizing that they were not going to make it to the North Pole, they did not want to die, as um, British explorers so frequently do. Uh, <laughs> they turned around and headed for land, and uh, they had to winter on Franz Joseph Land, met up with a British expedition, and arrived back in port the day after the, the ship Pram. The day after. Um, it's an incredible story, and people have tried to replicate that journey uh, now and failed multiple, multiple times, also because the ice is different now due to global warming. Well, so, um, it was a tremendous scientific tour de force. Uh, he discovered the, well, he achieved the farthest north. He discovered that the Arctic Ocean is a deep ocean, like the Atlantic Ocean, like the Pacific Ocean, uh, many thousands of meters deep, and, and a broad ocean with a broad continental shelf that's shallow. Uh, any, like many of the oceans, this is the same place that we were going to do pretty much the very next survey of the Arctic Ocean floor. Later in life, he became the first professor of oceanography anywhere at the University of Oslo. Uh, he was the uh, uh, Norway's delegate to the League of Nations, uh, and as part of his work for the League of Nations, he helped found what is now called the UN, Commission, UN High Commission on Refugees, work for which he received the Nobel Prize in 1928. And uh, his North Polar map stood for 90 years as the definitive map of the, uh, of the North Polar regions and ocean floor. Okay, brings us to us. I would say that maybe the Apollo program is like Nansen. And we were simply employing the standard uh, uh, tools of oceanography as they exist, but doing it from two massive icebreakers. The US Coast Guard Cutter Healy uh, on her maiden Arctic voyage, and the veteran uh, uh, German Coast Guard Cutter uh, Forschungsschiff Polar Stern. Dr. Snow was part of a 2001 expedition that explored the Gackle Ridge, a seafloor mountain system located between Greenland and Siberia. They mapped volcanoes deep under the ocean and made some interesting discoveries. What we did was map in detail the floor of the Arctic Ocean, particularly along the Mid-Ocean Ridge, to determine its shape, to learn about the formation of magmas at the Mid-Ocean Ridge. We also did ocean floor sampling using an enormous hydraulic grab with a TV pointing down through it. And if you, if you like what you see in the TV, you put it down on the floor, close the jaws, and whatever that is, it's coming home with you. It was a lot of work. We were much, much more successful than we had ever thought that we would be in sampling the ocean floor. This is the stuff that melts to make a volcanic magma. So this is like a... This is like a bonanza for me, because this is exactly the stuff that I study. It's been the subject of uh, most of my subsequent work. These mantle rocks are formed by very ancient events that get cycled through the very depths of the Earth. Um, and the volcanic rocks are exactly made of what they, in our favorite TV show called Dragon Glass, uh, are very alkaline in nature. The Arctic Gackle Ridge is the slowest spreading mid-ocean ridge in the world. It's got the thinnest ocean volcanic crust overall, and the basalt and mantle compositions 
don't exactly conform to what our uh, pre-existing notions had been, but I guess it wouldn't be science if it wasn't like that, right? But uh, uh, we, we would, had been hoping for that, and this is exactly what hap happened. Uh, work on this hasn't stopped, and there have been a couple of expeditions since then, but I think that sort of the great age of exploration of the Arctic Ocean has really been, has really been reached. The, 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 um, there won't be any broad surveys anymore like the ones we did. And so I feel like it's almost the end of an era. Uh, this was the last major mid-ocean ridge to be explored in this way. And I feel myself very privileged to have been able to uh, be a part of that. So I'll leave you with Nansen and the spirit of, uh, uh, of European romantic exploration that uh, I think drives many of us to go to places that nobody's ever been before, even if those are uh, uh, theoretical parts of tiny molecules uh, that, uh, that show a, a resonance that maybe nobody has ever seen before. But that's the spirit of exploration that motivates many people, myself included. Terrific. Well, when the astronauts were picking up rocks on the moon, mm -hmm. I, I think the question was raised, so what practical application does this have for us? mere earthlings. So what practical applications do you see in your research on these volcanic activities under the ocean? Or do you care? <laughs> well, so first of all, I'll say I had the honor to meet Jack Schmidt. Uh, Jack, ha Jack Harrison Schmidt was the, uh, uh, the last man on the moon and the first and only geologist uh, who, uh, who, and I have a picture someplace of him taking his geology hammer and whacking against an enormous moon rock. Um, but the, uh, the lunar exploration program uh, taught us far more about the uh, inner workings of the Earth. I mean, the lunar exploration, of course, at the time was a purely political thing, right? Uh, uh, President Kennedy said, I believe before the decade is out that we must uh, uh, send a man to the moon. And so the the scientific program was secondary, but it was revolutionary in that uh, well, we learned about the early history of, uh, of the moon that probably echoes the early history of the Earth as well. And so these are things we could never have learned otherwise. And, and so that's sort of the basic science aspect. We learn things because, um, we go out to learn things because we were fundamentally curious about why the Earth is there. This often results in big advances in practical things, like the transistor. Nobody was looking to uh, make better electron tubes when they discovered the transistor. In other regards, it simply satisfies our need to understand our universe, and, uh, and not just to colonize it. And, and so, so I think there's the, both parts. I, and I think a lot of us were surprised. I know this is a different area, the Ring of Fire, and, but when that volcano erupted yes. in the Pacific, uh, some months ago, I was a little shocked. I, <laughs> you, if you saw the satellite pictures, the, the, the smoke cloud was extraordinarily large, and you just don't think about volcanic activity on the ocean floor very much until, of course, it happens. Until it happens. But these are happening, the ones you were looking at in this ridge are happening so slowly mm -hmm. that you know, we probably won't feel it or see it. Well, we... we probably won't feel it, but uh, we see it through the uh, seismic signature of the eruptions. And there's hundreds of eruptions happening every day uh, along the global mid-ocean ridge system. It's sort of a part of this hidden world of the ocean floor. We didn't really know much about the ocean floor 
until World War II. Uh, post after World War II, we had d developed a lot of geophysical instrumentation to help um, find submarines that we then turned inward towards the ocean floor. And we learned a lot about um, where the ocean floor comes from and how, it, how it's made. That's, um, it's, it's an ongoing revolution. It's very, very different than up here on the continent, here at Telluride. It's really very, very different processes. Now, you're going on another voyage in October, correct? That's, that's, I hope so. Yes, you, you, you talked to us about it, to collect rock samples. And, and you compare it to flying in space because you're in, quote, a little capsule for quite a while, unquote. Mm -hmm. As someone who once had a panic attack inside the submarine ride at Disneyland, I'd like to know if you have to train for claustrophobic um, uh, whatever, panic, <laughs> when you go down on a small capsule for quite a while, what does that mean, quite a while? A, a day. That's Eight enough. Hours. That's enough. It's, I'll say it's no worse than driving to Dallas from Houston uh, in a compact car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's, there's less traffic. <laughs> but seriously, no claustrophobia. Not for me. No, I, I couldn't wait to get in that thing. I was so excited. Uh, and the Japanese, I, I work with the Japanese uh, uh, um, Administration for Marine Science and Technology, and they, they are so safety focused that uh, you never, they're, they're so well prepared, you never have at, at any moment the sense that anything could go wrong, which is a good, good way to think about it. What could go wrong? We frequently ask our scientists how they first got interested in, the, in the, their field. And you mentioned that it happened to you when you were a young boy. You, you were on the Green River in the Desolation Valley in Utah, right? That's exactly right. Uh, did you look up at the rock formations and say, holy schist, this is something <laughs> I want to pursue in my life? Um, schist. I, schist, right? Schist. Yeah. No, I, I did not, actually. I, I mean, I was just 14. But, uh, but we had a bona fide my dad was a physicist, and he had a bunch of his physics pals along. But we had actually a bona fide geologist along who like, gave a continuous running commentary on, uh, on the rocks that we were seeing, the Green River Formation. Um, and, and we went scrambling around in the hills, and we actually found a dinosaur fossil. And uh, it was a really very, very charming experience. So you were hooked from that point? I was hooked from that point on. I'm, I'm interested in your experience on the icebreaker. I think I told you that my father was a Navy captain who had command of an icebreaker in the Arctic Circle many years ago, which had been a different scene and a different experience. What was it like for you on the icebreaker? How long were you out there, and, and what did you see? The, um, the expedition itself was long, 70 days. Mm. Um, and so one thing is it's a very... So, so inside the icebreaker is very comfortable. It's like a hotel. Uh, it's not quite like a carnival cruise or something like that. Uh, but it's a, uh, they have good food, excellent food, and, uh, and, and a carnival cruise did not have science instrumentation that we could uh, play with. And so we, would, we had plenty of work to do every day. And, um, and so and from the point of view of living, it was nothing like Nansen's experience on the ice. How does the melting of the Arctic ice caps affect the, this kind of research? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. Uh, <laughs> oh, go ahead. We're 
<laughs> We're just among friends here. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, it, <laughs> uh -oh. For the research, not wonderful for humankind, but... Uh, but good for you guys, not good for the planet. Good for, my, good for our science, but not very good for the planet, certainly. And, uh, and uh, we also had a crew of uh, ice physicists on board, and so they're able... Uh, because we're, we have them along for the ride. We wrote the proposal, but they, uh, they tag along. And so they're able to study the thinning of the ice and do actual measurements of ice thickness with a variety of different methods. And, uh, but for us, it just means that there's much less multi-year ice, which there, there certainly is even since uh, 2001. Now that it's uh, 2022, there's a lot less multi-year ice, a lot more first-year ice exactly in the regions that we'd like to go to. So it would be a lot easier to do this kind of um, work. The only problem is if the ice gets too scarce, that's when the waves come. Mm. And uh, we thought that the ice would be difficult, but in fact, there, for sampling operations, there are some advantages to working in ice, exactly because there are no waves. Shall but we open it up for yeah, questions? We, we want to open it up to questions from the audience. Has there, any, has there been any, any uh, record of artists participating in any of these uh, modern uh, surveys? I mean, we, we saw that a lot in the 19th century with photographers and painters and writers and so on, accompanying uh, the scientists. And I'm just wondering if you experienced that all in the 20th century. At that time, it was very difficult to justify uh, bringing an artist along on a cruise because they would say, well, that's a berth that could, a scientist could also have occupied. So what I did, <laughs> I, I had sort of some of these conversations with my brother-in-law, who is a poet. And I said, gee, you know, why don't we get you signed up for geology classes, and then we can claim that you're a geologist. <laughs> so he went to the geology department at Oregon State University, where he was at that time a postdoc of some kind, a fellow, uh, uh, in poetry, <laughs> and he signed up for uh, a full load of geology classes, and uh, and, and the, the geology department there was in on the in on this. They were like, yes, 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 we'll do it, and uh, he, he signed up, and then they wrote the letter certifying that he was a student in good standing in the geology program in their department, yeah. uh, and everything got approved, and then he dropped all his classes the next day. <laughs> That's a great but story. He then wrote a poem uh, as a result of his experiences that was published uh, a few years later. <laughs> we have a young questioner right up here. Right here. Oh, yes. Um, is the magma coming out of the volcanoes a plasma? Is the magma coming out of the volcanoes a plasma? Yeah, the answer to that is, strictly speaking, no. <laughs> That's the short answer. Uh, plasma being a superheated state of matter where everything's ionized and... Uh, and so at the bottom of the ocean, uh, the, the conditions just aren't there to create a plasma. The magma is a liquid, uh, and, but it's a very special liquid that contains crystals, and so it has uh, special mechanical properties that are really interesting. But that's, I, I, I love that question because it sets up a question for me. You know, when you, your talk is called Fire and Ice, mm -hmm. and I imagine the fire coming up from the core and, and hitting ice, hitting ice water. What, what does that look like? What would that be like? Okay. The one place on Earth, there may be another, I can't think, I, I, but the main place that that happens, what you're talking about, is in Iceland. 
And so you have volcanoes erupting right under glaciers. All the it's, time. <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. Yes. Um, the, the volcanism itself actually doesn't really know that it, there's a glacier on top of it. Um, uh, <laughs> all it knows is there's water. The, and it's pretty similar. Wherever there's water, there's a special style of volcanism that's associated with subsea uh, eruptions that produces something called pillow lava. Great. We have time for one, one final more. question. One more yes. question. Well, since I'm, I'm John's former colleague at University of Houston and his hiking partner, uh, <laughs> so I can ask the killer question here. All right. And, and, and that has to do, you know, if we think about exploration in the, in the Arctic right now, and especially that region, it's not about exploring volcanism. It's about explore, exploration of oil. Could you comment a little bit about how and why oil-bearing formations are in that particular Ooh. region, especially Ooh. considering it's a very thin and slowly moving part of the crust? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So trust Eric to ask a hard question. <laughs> um, so in my work, I'm going, I'm trying really, really hard to go where the uh, oil and gas is not. The Gackel Ridge that I study has spread uh, on the southern side of that is the Barents Sea, which is a, uh, a well, well-known uh, oil-rich area and uh, the Russians drill there, the Norwegians drill there. It's the reason why Norway has gone from being a very impoverished country at the time of uh, Nansen's exploration to being a very wealthy country now. There's exactly the oil wealth of the Barents Sea. And, uh, but on the other side, there's a thin sliver um, of continental crust that runs from Siberia uh, almost over to North America. This is called the Lomonosov Ridge. And that also is oil and gas bearing. And, uh, uh, and ripe, for, ripe for oil and gas exploration just as soon as all the uh, ice melts off it. And, uh, th and that probably will happen and it probably won't be, it will probably be uh, the Russians who do that because they've pretty much claimed all of the Lomonosov Ridge for themselves. Uh, they, they went there, when, the year that I was there in 2001, they, they sent an expedition also to the North Pole, dove on the North Pole and claimed it for Russia. Oh. Uh, they, uh, they took their submarines down to the ocean floor and having sailed with the Russians, and I hope I, hope I don't offend anybody from Russia here, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ever go in a submarine underneath the Arctic ice. Just what if you? What if where there was ice where you were coming up? You know, there's oh. no way. There's no way to stop. When you're coming up in one of these submersibles, you drop the ballast weights and you're coming home. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You think Nansen would do it? Nansen would do it. <laughs> that man knew no fear. <laughs> Good. I'm still musing about your relative, who, uh, the poet masquerading as a geologist, <laughs> and I, I was thinking, I will never ever grok a thing as lovely as a rock. Oh. <laughs> anyway, we'd like to thank Dr. John Snow for a fascinating look at his exploration of volcanic activity on the ocean floor. Thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to be here. We've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Snow, professor and chair of geology and geophysics at Louisiana State University. This edition of Science Straight Up was recorded before an audience at the Telluride Conference Center in Mountain Village. Dean Raleigh was in charge of sound for our live event. Science Straight Up is produced in conjunction with the Telluride Science and Innovation Center. The executive director is Mark Kozak, and the managing director is Cindy Fusting. 
For more information, go to telluridescience.org. You can also find our podcasts on that site. I'm George Lewis. And I'm Judy Muller. We invite you to join us next time on Science Straight Up.